Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And uh, happy Mardi Gras. Thanks, you too. Oh, thanks. Caroline, have you ever been to Mardi Gras in New Orleans? I haven't. Really? No, I haven't. Let me tell you, girl. Um, I've I've been to Mardi Gras a few times now, and I've been to New Orleans a number of times because one of my best friends lives there. And when I the prospect of going the first time, I was skeptical mm-hmm. because I, I was in college, um, but I was still like, I don't know. That seems like an awful lot of, of boobs and and booze. Yeah, which makes me sound like a real fun college kid. Um, <laughs> but it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. You don't if you don't want to see any exposed breasts, you don't have to. Or if you do, you can. Um, but there, there was one quote about Mardi Gras by this woman named Carol Flake, who's written a lot about the history of Mardi Gras, who says there is a place in New Orleans Carnival for anyone who cares to join in. And that is completely my experience. Hmm. Um, so I was really excited when you were down to do an episode on Mardi Gras and women. Mardi Gras! Yeah, I mean, the stereotype is absolutely the stereotype that you had as a college student, which it's just like this debaucherous, like, X-rated, boo-bearing, you know, bead fest. How do you like that for alliteration? Hey, hey. Well, and it can absolutely be as X-rated and wild as you want it to be. Um, and we should also note that the Mardi Gras does not just happen in New Orleans. It also takes place in, in Metairie, uh, in Mobile, Alabama, and in smaller towns all around New Orleans and in, in the Gulf area. Uh, so let's just, let's just start talking about Mardi Gras because we're going to get into some stuff about Mardi Gras and women and gender. And it's not all going to be about boobs. That's right. Well, starting off, uh, Mardi Gras really is just this teeny tiny little six week celebration that has more than 30,000 parade riders and 59 crews. No big deal. Yeah. It, uh, I was astounded to find out that it has for money nerds out there, get this, a $1 billion economic impact on New Orleans. I am not surprised. I'm not surprised either. I mean, it attracts around 4 million tourists today, but even in the 1900s, it was a major tourist attraction. Mm-hmm. As early as 1900, there were 100,000 people, which was a lot for that time, going to New Orleans to see Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras. Well, its origins are not only international, but ancient. It goes all the way back to those silly pagans hanging out uh, over in Europe and Rome. Basically, Mardi Gras itself is a Christian holiday and popular cultural phenomenon and tradition, but it actually dates back to spring and fertility rites like Saturnalia and Lupercalia, which was, you know, just like whatever, just like a circus-like orgy. No big deal. <laughs> no big deal. But moving from uh, <laughs> pagan orgies to Christianity, Mardi Gras season officially kicks off on January 6th with the 12th night feast of the Epiphany, which commemorates uh, in, in in Christian lore, the day that the three wise men visited Jesus, which is which is a little funny. I mean, because all of this is so steeped in religion, and the Catholic Church has like officially been like, "All right, you can you guys can have Mardi Gras because Mardi Gras Day is not only a legal holiday in New Orleans, but it also is the day before." Lent starts. Right. You got to get all that crazy out. That's right. Got to shake that crazy out of you. 
But those pagan fertility rites and rituals were incorporated into Christianity because when the religion arrived in Rome, religious leaders were like, eh, we really can't like do away with everything. You know, they're, they're going to get upset. So we'll just incorporate it into this tradition so that people can, you know, have these parties before this, this season of, of giving things up, basically. Yeah. It's that, that 40 day period of penance between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday. And Mardi Gras spread from Rome to other European countries, including France, Germany, Spain, and England. And, of course, it is France that gave us the name Mardi Gras, which is French for Fat Tuesday. Fat Tuesday. It's also known as Carnival. Uh, and celebrated all over the world, mainly in countries with Roman Catholic populations. But I don't know many people who would, you know opt out of celebrating Mardi Gras. I mean, it's it's a fun time for anybody. It is a fun time, and king cake mm. is delicious. So good. And you know what, Mardi Gras, like, I don't keep up with when it is because it's always different, and I just, I, I'm always excited for a king cake, and then I just let it pass me by. No. I oh, know. No. Uh, I have gotten the baby, though, before in the king cake. Well, then you need to get on it and buy a king cake. I know. For me. Okay, for sure. Just for you. Uh, but in the United States, I, I didn't know this. This is uh, really fascinating. The first American Mardi Gras is thought to have taken place on March 3rd, 1699, when French explorers Iberville and Bienville landed in what is now Louisiana. They were basically camped out around f- uh, 50 miles outside of modern day New Orleans. And they were like, hey, ho, ho, let's have... <laughs> Of Mardi Gras. Yeah, they actually dubbed the spot where they landed Pointe du Mardi Gras. How do you like that for a non-accent? Um, anyway, uh, a lot, New Orleans and other French settlements began marking the holiday with street parties, masked balls, and lavish dinners. And that sounds pretty much like Mardi Gras today, actually. But important note, Caroline, the very first modern day Mardi Gras celebration outside of, uh, you know, uh, Iberville and Bienville hanging out. It did not happen in New Orleans. It actually happened in 1703 in Mobile, Alabama, hmm. which still has a Mardi Gras tradition. And uh, side note for documentary fans out there, check out The Order of the Myths. It came out in 2008 all about Mardi Gras in Mobile and how it is still highly racially segregated. Um, but a little, little fun Mardi Gras fact for you. But moving back to New Orleans, when the Spanish took control, they abolished Mardi Gras. How rude. How (laughs) rude. How would do, who would do that? Yeah, and, uh, the ban stayed in place until Louisiana became a U.S. state in 1812. And then you start to see it coming back in full force. And in 1827, you have a group of students who put on these colorful costumes and dance to the streets of New Orleans. Basically imitating all of the revelry they'd seen while they were in Paris. And a decade later, the first recorded New Orleans Mardi Gras took place. Yeah, but then in uh, 1857, you have the origin of the cruise. And that's crew with a K and an E on the end. Um, and these are the organizations that you see today that put together those massive floats. And it was all really started by rich white dudes who were like, hey, let's start up a secret society. Yeah, that sounds fun. So in 1857, the secret society of New Orleans businessmen called the Mystic Crew of Comus organized a torchlit Mardi Gras procession. 
and they had marching bands and rolling floats. And all of the floats were themed around mythology and literature, which you still see mm-hmm. a lot today. Yeah, and we have Thomas to thank, honestly, for not getting Mardi Gras canned again, because leading up to this time, it was pretty debaucherous. The maskers were pretty violent. It was just kind of a, a girls gone wild, horrible type of thing. But Thomas was known to have beautified the parade, ensuring that it would stick around. And we should also note that one important part of the Mardi Gras tradition that also emerges during that first parade are the flambeau. And flambeau is French for flame. And these were usually slaves or free men of color who would march alongside these rich white guys' floats with torches to light up these magnificent creations that they had made. Hmm. And you still see the flambeau tradition today. And in 2014, we had the very first all-female flambeau troupe marching alongside the Muses parade, and they call themselves the Glambo. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of women and people on the sidelines... We, we can't talk about Mardi Gras in this podcast and not address that gender aspect because in the early days, in the mid to late 19th century, women were totally in the background. They were not participating in any way on the floats and things like that, except for maybe the queen. But these elite male crews had working class women designing their fancy costumes and the floats for the parades. While the upper class women also played supporting roles, but this time actually helping their husbands, their rich husbands, uh, display their mock royalty. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny that, that with the history of Mardi Gras, it all starts out with men really wanting to play dress up. Yeah. And have these fancy balls and, and pretend to be kings and dukes and whatnot. And at the, at those early balls, the men would wear these elaborate costumes. Whereas the wives would just wear, you know, typical gowns. Um, although in 1872 at the very first Rex parade, which today is, I mean, it's still one of the, the biggest super crews as they're called. There were some women who dressed up as men in order to march behind the parade. Mm, Got a cross dress just to even participate. <laughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, like you said, women weren't really uh, allowed or, you know, it wasn't the, the tradition for women to dress up or, you know, masquerade. But in 1896, you have a group of upper class women who founded Les Mysterieuses. That's not how you say it. Um, a non-parading organization. So they were dressing up, but they weren't parading. And their big thing was to host a ball that reversed gender traditions. They alone were allowed to dress in costume and in masquerade, concealing their identities. And they got they picked a queen who selected her own queen. Uh, but they only had held two balls and disbanded in 1900. Yeah, you see a number of these all-women crews kind of pop up and then sort of dissolve. Um, so, for instance, uh, you have the Mittens, which uh, came around in 1901, which were composed of debutantes, but it only lasted until... 1920. And then in 1906, you have the Mystic Maids. In 1911, the crew of Yami. And then in 1917, though, you have the crew of Iris, which is still in existence. Yeah. And they began by hosting small king cake parties, which sounds like exactly what I want to go to. Uh, And they now claim to be the oldest and largest of all the female carnival crews. Uh, In 1949, 
they held an extravagant first ball, which was actually televised. And 10 years later, in 1959, they actually started parading. Yeah, it took that long for them to start having parades, which to me seems so strange because, I mean, I know that the balls are a big deal, mm-hmm. um, but <laughs> okay, a ball's fine, but I'm all about the parade. Sure, exactly. Candy and beads, man. That's right. Um, and it, like I said, it still parades, but it's a day parade that happens two weekends before Mardi Gras. So it's not exactly in the in a prime spot. Yeah, exactly. Um, but in the 1920s, you do start to see the formation of several African-American women's crews, including the Red Circle, Young Ladies 23 and the Mystic Crew. And this is notable because for the, you know, crews like the crew of Isis, Mystic Maids and I'm sure Les Mysterieuses, they were not inviting to women who were not white and not of their upper upper crust standing. Yeah, the defense that everybody in these kind of upper class crews give is that it's like, well, it's just it's just me and my friends. You know, I'm just I'm not discriminating. It's just that I'm only inviting my friends and family. But thankfully, in scrappy New Orleans tradition, that does not stop other people from forming crews. So you do have the emergence of those early um, African-American all-women crews like the Young Ladies 23. Um, but we should note, too, that in 1941, that is when you have the first women's parade. Even though the crew of Iris is older, it's the crew of Venus with their inaugural pageant that kicks off women parading. Yeah, and they did not have an easy time of it. They paraded during a downpour, and the crowd was hardly kind. It was very hostile. And Arthur Hardy, who's a Mardi Gras historian, points out that, yeah, they got a lot of publicity, but none of it was positive. Yeah, he was talking to uh, the Alt Weekly in New Orleans, uh, The Gambit, saying it's interesting to look at the newspaper clippings from back then because it was front-page news. Women on floats, the apocalypse is near. And he goes on to say, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but really not much. But what's also notable about the the crew of Venus is that, yes, these are all white women, all wealthy women. But a lot of them, too, at this time are becoming businesswomen in their own right. And so they're starting up their own crews because they don't need men to pay for them. So they're like, hey, listen, guys, y'all can go do your, you know, your Rex thing and we're going to do ours. And in a way, like Hardy talks about how it was sort of symbolic of early glass ceiling tapping, at least, that was going on. Yeah. Defying gender norms at Mardi Gras. Go for it. Go for it. Well, all the way, flash forward half a century to 2000, and that's when you have the crew of muses form. And they are the first of the contemporary all-female parading crews to organize a night parade, which occurs on the Thursday before Mardi Gras, which is a much more prestigious spot than the crew of Iris had. Yeah, and, and Muses is part of this more recent movement among newer crews to be more open and egalitarian. And they have that open membership, like you, you and I could apply online right now, mm-hmm. Caroline, um, as a way to democratize the cruise system and, and make it not just a thing where it's only white rich people, but opening it up to make sure that it's economically diverse and also racially diverse. Mm-hmm. And um, I would also like to note that the muses have one of the best premium throws as in the, you know, the stuff that they toss passersby. Um, they collect high heels from their members throughout the year. And then leading up to the Mardi Gras parade, 
they decorate them in all sorts of fun things and throw them out and what and it's uh well some have said that they're just waiting for a lawsuit because you can imagine yeah. throwing high heels into a crowd of drunk people might not be wise right in the eye but that makes it so exciting when you have big throws like that it's similar to uh the zulu parade where the uh the signature throw is a coconut right which tends to dent cars and heads. Yes. But yeah, yeah, similar thing. But, you know, uh, Robin Roberts, who in her 2006 book on the topic really, really dove into the gender of gender and history of Mardi Gras, points out the significance of holding this night parade. This is this is a big deal, especially for an all women group, because she says that by scheduling their parade at night, the crew of muses are self-consciously challenging the domination of these elite male crews. They're moving from the behind-the-scenes roles that women traditionally fill during Mardi Gras. They're getting out there on the parade route and uh, now organizing and performing center stage in their own parade. Like you said, they don't need no stinking man. Well, and they've become so popular that th- there's actually a wait list now to even get into the parade. It's one of the largest crews, and it's only one of two all-female super crews. There's also one called Nyx, N-Y-X. But Muses, at least from my experience, is extremely popular. People Mm -hmm. love the Muses parade. It's a lot of fun. But it's also, I mean, it's also at night. And if you're a night parade during Mardi Gras, it's probably going to be a little bit more fun because... Let's face it, you've been drinking hurricanes all day. Oh Lord, I just can't imagine how much I would, how much I would pass out. <laughs> but you're also weighted down by beads. I get bead fever whenever I go, and at first I get really excited and start trying to catch as many beads as possible. But then once you have about five pounds of beads <laughs> around your neck, you're like, wait, nothing, nothing else. I'm hot and tired. Don't toss me anything else unless it's a Bloody Mary. And, and I, I feel like I'm, I'm painting quite a rosy picture of Mardi Gras, but it, there is, one thing that certainly stands out in the parade, and that is the fact that even today, it is very segregated racially. Yeah, the effort to actually racially desegregate, and we're not even talking about gender yet, we're talking about racial segregation. The effort to desegregate these parades and parties was led by a longtime civil rights advocate, Dorothy May Taylor. Uh, she was the first woman elected to the New Orleans City Council in 1986. And back in 1991, she proposed an ordinance to desegregate the gentlemen's luncheon clubs that had been the public face of the Mardi Gras cruise. Crews weren't actually desegregated until 1992. And basically the reasoning behind this was like, it wasn't so much that, oh, we have to have 50-50 or we need these quotas to make these crews uh, racially equal. It had a lot more to do with going all the way back to the origin of the American Mardi Gras. So the origin of Carnival and Mardi Gras in general, was the pagan rituals, right? But in America, it had a lot more to do with businessmen, white, upper-class, elite businessmen getting together and striking deals. And if those deals are closed off to the bulk of society, including African-Americans, it's kind of not a level playing field. Yeah, I mean, because that's one thing you, you might not think about as an outsider looking in at Mardi Gras, that these crews throughout the year are actually very powerful networking opportunities especially if you're in something like uh you know the the Rex crew which costs a lot of money to join but in 1992 this whole talk of desegregation really set off a firestorm among a lot of 
these crews. And in fact, Comus and another crew called Momus canceled their parades that year in protest. They were like, listen, no, we, we don't we don't want to have to do this. And um, I was reading a story before we came into the studio today from the Times-Picayune. I think it was came out last year. Talk, looking back at the, uh, or maybe it was from 2012, because it was looking at the 20 years since the, the 1992 desegregation debacle, um, because people were so panicked by it. And, um, the, the takeaway from the story was that a lot of the desegregation that has happened has been a lot more organic through, um, organizations like the Muses starting up. And I believe, uh, Orpheus is a newer crew. That's a lot, it, you know, it just accepts everybody. So it's almost like with a new generation coming in and mm-hmm. taking over Mardi Gras, they're just sort of doing it in their own way. Yeah. And not paying as much attention to the old guard, like white secret society factor. Yeah. Well, an earlier version of Taylor's ordinance had actually called for an end to gender discrimination as well, but it was thrown out because not only were men not excited about this, but women were like, hey, hey, wait, 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 we want our own things, too. Like, you know, women today, especially like the muses are like, no, we don't want to have to accept men. So we're fine if they don't accept us because we're not accepting them either. Yeah, it's funny. They they want to keep their own floats to themselves. And one woman made a point saying that uh, I think she was uh, she's a member of the muses talking about how, listen, Mardi Gras is a time when, you know, things can get weird really fast. And if you have I mean, they're not supposed to drink on the floats, mm-hmm. but it totally happens. And they're like, if you mix alcohol and say a husband and wife standing next to each other and the husband tosses beads to an attractive girl on the sideline. She was like, it's just it was, that's just one example of how things could get uncomfortable. Right. And Arthur Hardy, that Mardi Gras historian, uh, talked to a lot of these women and he said, look, the ladies crew said we love men, but they are not going to dress with us or be in our floats. They can just meet us at the end of the parade. And so that ordinance was amended to allow for single gender crews, gender exclusion, a-okay on all sides that it was that racial aspect that was the one that was more contested. But we also need to talk about how African-Americans in New Orleans have also made their own Mardi Gras traditions while this is happening. That that initiative in 1992 wasn't like, oh, no, the, you know, they, there's nothing for them. No, they've been doing their own thing. For a while. Right. Like uh, the Mardi Gras Indians who began appearing in the late 19th century. And the first group was the Creole Wild West from the Seventh Ward. And there's some origin theories about these participants, one of which is that the groups are honoring Native Americans who helped hide runaway slaves from bounty hunters and slave masters. Another theory is that the Buffalo Bills Wild West show that traveled through New Orleans in the late 19th century inspired African-Americans to dress as Indians. Others that were interviewed in the news talked about how um, because a lot of their costumes kind of harken back to like an Afro-Caribbean heritage or a West African heritage, that they are, yes, uh, honoring Native Americans, but also honoring their own West African heritage. Yeah, and I mean, in their costumes which a lot of them make themselves are incredible in the level of like craftsmanship and detail that goes into it. Um, but we've also got to talk about the crew of Zulu because Zulu is a tough parade to make because it's early in the morning. And if you've been out at a night parade, that can be hard <laughs> to make. But it's so 
worth it. Uh, the crew of Zulu started out as the Zulu Social Aid and Pleasure Club, and apparently it was essentially a group of like African-American men who got together to sort of parody these rich white guys' secret societies. They're like, oh, yeah, we're, we're going to do this, too. Look at these white guys wanting to make themselves kings for a day. Yeah, and what's funny about the crew of Zulu is they are dressing in blackface, wearing grass skirts and coconut bras. Things that, like, you know, if if one of these elite white men in the Rex crew, for instance, were to do, it would be incredibly racist. Yeah, I mean, basically what they're taking is all of the racism that has been directed at them Mm -hmm. and making a complete mockery out of it. Right. And uh, so they came together and had marched together as early as 1901. But the first official Zulu parade happened in 1909. And a few years later, we have the emergence of the Million Dollar Baby Dolls. And this was a group that I hadn't heard about before. But it was an organization of African-American women who were a lot of them were working in the Storyville district, which is no more. But it was uh, Storyville was New Orleans red light district. Yeah. And so they sort of used their profits from working in that red light district to compete with other African-American prostitutes on Mardi Gras. And the origin of the name and their costumes came from reclaiming what pimps called them, basically, which were which was baby doll. And so they they donned short satin dresses, stockings with garters and bonnets. But they paired that, you know, play on dressing like baby dolls against bold and provocative public behavior for at the time that not only exploited stereotypes, but empowered them, made them visible. It brought them out of that red light district where they were basically segregated in their own black uh, red light district and brought them out into the streets to parade. Yeah. And uh, recently, Kim Marie Vez wrote an entire book about this called The Baby Dolls. Breaking the Race and Gender Barriers of the New Orleans Mardi Gras Tradition. And I, I don't think the baby dolls, they aren't a crew necessarily. They don't have their own float or anything like that. But they march through the parades. Yeah. Um, and in her history of the baby dolls, Vaz talks about how they later collected dues and held dances to raise money for their baby doll costumes, which possibly made them the first organization, in fact, of parading women predating that, I believe, 1941 crew of Venus Parade that we mentioned earlier. And she talks about how, at the time, high society white women's carnival organizations held balls, but they didn't parade. So the baby dolls were kind of the first. Yeah. And a lot of them have resurfaced. A lot of women in New Orleans are are kind of reforming these groups as a nod to their heritage. Yeah. And and, uh, and one last nod, again, to the, the African-American traditions around Mardi Gras, one of my one of my favorite things too are the the second line parades that happen. And those are just the the brass bands that mm-hmm. will march along behind the floats or alongside the floats and really keep spirits high. I know, I love those marching bands. Yeah. I say like I've been to New Orleans, but I like them when I see them on television. <laughs> exactly. Well, Caroline, now we've got to talk about what I have a feeling a lot of podcast listeners have been waiting for in this episode which is digging into the issue of boobs and beads. And we'll talk about that right after we come back from a quick break. But now, Caroline, boobs and beads. Yeah, I I would think, you know, if I, you know, as someone who's never been to New, New Orleans, Mardi Gras, 
I would think that's all there is to it. That's that's what people are doing morning, noon, and night. And a lot of uh, women in New Orleans are very upset that this is perceived as an entrenched tradition. Yeah, if you go to uh, more of the, the neighborhood Mardi Gras celebrations and go and see like the larger parades, you're not going to see a lot of nudity because, um, I mean, there are also kids everywhere up yeah. and down the streets, and it's more of a family kind of thing. It's really once you get into the French Quarter and go to Bourbon Street where you have all the balconies mm-hmm. that you see all the boobs and some penises and butts. Yeah, women writing on the website MardiGrasNewOrleans.com blame it on basically some spring break college age tourists who, you know, end up getting fall down drunk on Bourbon Street, losing their inhibitions and flashing various genitalia at people on the floats. Yeah, but uh well, there wouldn't be any floats in the French Quarter. This is all people in the balconies with beads yelling down to people. And I mean, every now and then you'll have people in the street yelling up. But uh yeah, it's. It's a sight to see and a sight that, unfortunately, you sometimes can't forget. Um, but there is a paper called Ritual Disrobement at Mardi Gras, Ceremonial Exchange and Moral Order by a pair of researchers at LSU, which I was very excited to find because I was like, yes, there is an academic paper on boobs and beads at Mardi Gras. And they think, though, that the nudity began in the mid-70s, largely because the French Quarter had become sort of a haven for gay men. And during Mardi Gras, they would get really wild and they had a tendency of flashing their penises. Um, but they say that it really didn't become a widespread feature until the 1980s. So you had big bangs and boobs <laughs> coming out at this time. <laughs> Yeah, and, and they do, they talk about the gender and social hierarchies and do note that it was both men and women ritually disrobing. But women disrobing far more often than men. And what, what these researchers did, the me- it's the creepiest methodology I've ever read because they essentially set up cameras all around the French Quarter to capture moments of disrobement. And they found that in terms of uh, catching beads without flashing something, Guys were getting beads 70% of the time, not having to show anything. Women, and this is French Quarter specific, which makes a difference. But for women, it was only 22.5% of the time. And it's true. And If I walk down Bourbon Street, no, for the record, podcast listeners, no. I All of my beads have come from non-disrobement, keeping my shirt on. And, but if I walk through Bourbon Street, no, you're not going to get anything. You're not showing, showing off your gals. Well, you know. I think that's good to hear. Yeah. I think, I think the history of Mardi Gras is so rich and colorful and amazing. I, I love that it came from pagan orgies that were incorporated into Christianity and that now it's just like this long stretch of a good time before you go into Lent. Speaking of those pagan rituals, you could say that perhaps the the nudity that you see today is merely a manifestation of that. Uh, Shrum and Kilborn, those LSU researchers, write that owing to the continuing significance of gender differences in sexuality, women sometimes adopt the identity of ritual objects who perform for the veneration of the crowd. Hmm. And hence, bear their breasts for beads. So like we're almost like floats, too? 
Exactly. We have two, we have two floats. We each. have two floats. Yeah. But I would like to underscore on, on behalf of all the New Orleans locals out there that, yeah, you don't, ladies, you don't have to show you boobs for the yeah. beads. Yeah. Just go, go and have a good time. Go and have a good time. And you know what? Hey, if you, if you, if you end up in the French Quarter and you do, and you want to do it, okay. We're not going to judge you. But in the era of camera phones and Twitter, <laughs> the fact that it still happens astonishes me. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, though, okay. Yeah. All right. The era of Joe Francis. Yeah. Of Girls Gone Wild. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so th- this was really fun, though, to look at the, the gender and racial intersections of Mardi Gras. Cause it's a, it's a whole lot of fun in general in terms of just a, a wild event that I think everybody should experience once. Um, but there's, yeah, there's a lot of rich history to it. There are a lot of layers to this, to this old king cake. <laughs> And I, I mean, I want to hear listeners' layers. Like, I, I want to hear you tell us about your Mardi Gras experiences. So, yeah, send us all of your Mardi Gras thoughts, mom stuff at discovery.com. And hey, if you, uh, want to mail Caroline a king cake. <gasps> Kristen, too. Yeah, I'll Even, totally eat yeah, half of it. Yeah, send it to both of us. <laughs> you can do that as well. Uh, com, And for all of our sources on this episode, you can head over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com and click on the podcast link and you will see the episode, which contains all of our sources for further Mardi Gras reading. So we've got a couple of letters to share with you right now, in fact. <laughs> I have a message here from Mindy who wrote us to say thanks for the understanding miscarriage episode. It has been nine years and I have two healthy children, but it sometimes causes a lot of heartache. The podcast made it easier to talk to my best friend about it and we have had similar experiences. We both feel like a huge load has been lifted and we both feel a lot better. Thanks for being so amazing. And thank you, Mindy, for your letter. And I'm so glad it sparked a conversation between you two. Well, I've got an email here from Kara, and it's actually not about a podcast that we've done, um, but a Twitter conversation that started uh, a few weeks ago when I asked um, Twitter followers at Podcast about whether they thought that, quote-unquote, skinny shaming or thin shaming exists. And this was in response to a question that we had received on YouTube. And... Kara not only tweeted back, but she also sent a follow-up email. Um, and, and for the record, all of the Twitter responses that I received were very much like, yeah, no, this, this totally exists and we need to stop it as much as fat shaming needs to stop. So she writes, I've been dealing with skinny shaming myself since I was about 15 years old. Ever since I hit puberty, I've been tall, thin, and large-breasted. And I've always been criticized for it. I eat plenty of cheeseburgers, but I also work out to stay active and I also avoid unhealthy foods. And on top of that, I am blessed with a fast metabolism and quote-unquote thin genes. My first experience with skinny shaming came from my own grandmother, who asked everyone in my family if I wasn't eating, and whenever I went to the bathroom, she would follow me and ask what I was doing because she thought I was throwing up. Zero is my size. Because I have a small waist and minimal hips doesn't mean that anything is wrong. I believe that if you're treating your body with respect and living well, then your body is just right. How many times have we heard that people come in all shapes and sizes? And this applies to everyone, no matter how big or small. And uh, I agree with Kara and wanted to share this email to kind of open up this discussion even more broadly to see if we should devote perhaps an entire podcast 
to this issue of body shaming and how it often does get this divisive pitting fat shaming versus thin shaming and wanted to get listeners' thoughts on that. So let us know. Momstuffdiscovery.com is where you can email us or you can just also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or send us a message on Facebook as well. And to find all things Sminty, all of our podcast blogs and videos and all of our social media links, you need to head over to our website. It's stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 